Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'd like to welcome Mr. Mark Huberman. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, thank you. Wonderful. So you you have a very fascinating story. Um, you're from the National Health Association, a longstanding plant-based organization. But I'm going to let you tell us all the details because it's quite fascinating. And your your background, a lawyer and eating plant-based for a very long time, 60, how many years now? 57 in June. 67 in June. 67 years. 67 June 26th. So, so since your entire life, your whole life. Okay. So we got to go back because I needed, I was reading, doing some research on you and it said that you had been raised on the Sheltonian diet. Did I say that correctly? I did. You know, the, in, in, from my perspective, the modern day whole food plant-based movement really owes to Dr. Herbert Shelton and his peers, Dr. William Esser, that founded the, uh, the National Health Association that was called the American Natural Hygiene Society back in 1948. They were, and Dr. Shelton was kind of the modern day theorist of the whole food plant-based diet. It wasn't called until T. Colin Campbell invented the term whole food plant-based. It was what we considered the natural hygiene diet program, which was basically raw fruits and vegetables, mostly raw fruits and vegetables, eaten whole, unprocessed, without added oil, salt. Salt was considered a poison. Oil didn't have any room in it. Sugar was a stimulant. Coffee, alcohol, all these things just were not normal for human beings. And that was part of Dr. Shelton's health program. And he, he created something called the hygienic system back in the early 30s where he wrote a series of seven books on different aspects of health. Volume one was kind of a basic principles thing about how the real uh, key to healthcare is moving cause, which is what a revolutionary concept that we have today. Uh, volume two was all about food. He called it um, orthotrophy and used these kind of Greek terms and all that. But food to him, again, was the, the fit food for humanity were raw fruits and vegetables, nuts, dates, seeds, um, as little processed as could be. Food combining was kind of a kind of an interesting idea that they had for a long time, although uh, I don't think science has, has validated that today. But again, it was all about, you know, kind of organizing food. But the, the in terms of what the appropriate foods for humanity, the fit food for humanity, was raw fruits and vegetables, nuts, dates, seeds, baked potatoes, steamed vegetables, things like that. But they thought more raw than cooked was better. More vegetables than fruit was better. Um, nuts, avocados, those kinds of things were great, but dairy had no place. Uh, sugar had no place. Salt had no place. And if you read, Joel Furman likes to even sometimes cite Dr. Shelton's book, Superior Nutrition, that was written, I think, maybe 1952. One of his, he was a prolific writer. And Superior Nutrition is, you look at the table of contents, and it's, it's exactly what everybody's talking about in the whole food plant-based diet movement. So I, as one who's grown up in it and whose parents were kind of way ahead of their time in discovering it, I consider myself incredibly blessed. But we, the credit, in my view, for today's, the, the real pioneers of the whole food plant-based health movement aren't Caldwell Esselstyn, aren't T. Colin Campbell, although they, I mean, they've given scientific validity and credibility to all of this. But it really goes back to Dr. Herbert Shelton, Dr. William Esser, Dr. Robert Anderson, Dr. Robert Gross in New York, Dr. D.J. Scott in Cleveland, Dr. Gerald Benish in California. These were peers of Dr. Alan Goldhammer. These were peers of Dr. Frank Sabatino, people that taught him. But there's, there's where the real credit goes, in my view. 
So that is really fascinating. So where do you think they got this, like these thoughts or these conclusions, theories? Well, Dr. Shelton really kind of put it together, but he drew on people writing in the 1800s that were the health reformers, people that were like Jennings and Trawl and and Jackson, and even some progressive MD women who were looking at, 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 at healthier lifestyles, the importance of fresh air, clean water, um, women who wore tight clothing. This was women shouldn't be wearing tight clothing. wasn't healthful. And again, and, and Sylvester Graham was one of these early guys looking at vegetarianism more from and 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 this kind of diet more from the uh, temperance movement. But he recognized that fruits and vegetables. That's how people got well. He had the Graham houses where people would overcome the cholera epidemics by going to Graham houses, where they not only had Graham crackers but fruits and vegetables and clean air and fresh air and. So he was drawing upon all of these observations that a lot of MDs were making even in the 1800s about the, the key to health was removing, recognizing the causes of illness and what were the fit, proper diet for humanity. And, and, you know, the old kind of things of our teeth were made for chewing, not tearing. And, you know, some of those, some of those sort of anthropological views that they put together, but Dr. Shelton really brought it together as a health system. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they had their own experience as physicians, their observations of 40, 50 years of dealing with thousands of patients, getting them well from all kinds of conditions, recognizing that there's kind of a unitary cause, inflammation, toxemia, these kind of things that we're all recognizing today. They're all scientifically recognizing and validating that today. They did it observationally. But, it's remarkable because they, they only had the power of observation, they, right? They didn't have all the scientific technology that we have now to get down. I mean, it was just in the 1800s that the macronutrients were discovered, and it's correct. fascinating. Okay. So I guess Dr. Shelton, he inspired the Sheltonian diet. Or Sheltonian. Yeah, I, I think most people would call it the Sheltonian diet, which was, okay. you know, again, more, more whole, raw, unprocessed, uh, as the, the more the closer you got to that ideal, the better you were. And certainly without dairy, without sugar, without salt, without all of these kind of processed foods, the simpler you, 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 you uh, prepared your foods, the better you were. And um, hmm. they were just way ahead of their time. So tell me about your parents. Okay, so this is fascinating to me. So how did your parents get involved with this type of movement? So my parents um, were typical. I mean, they were the, the greatest generation. My father volunteered right after Pearl Harbor. They met at a USO in Youngstown, Ohio. Three years, they corresponded all through the war. He comes home December, uh, uh, Thanksgiving Day, 1945. They get engaged. They get married four months later. My brother comes along. I come along after that. Uh, but they, you know, they just lived a typical, you know, not, there certainly were no health concepts in, in their life or no vegetarianism or anything like that. But they um, had some health problems. They developed some health problems. My father was this very vigorous guy who in, the, in like 1950, maybe a year before I was born, collapsed walking my brother on the street with polio and was told he was never going to walk again. And here's this guy, very vigorous, a boxer. And you know, my father was a hunk. He was a great guy. And um, that just wasn't acceptable. My mother had chronic appendicitis, had thyroid problems, had a lot of problems. And again, they were facing medical solutions to those things. My brother, who was older, three years older than me, had bronchial asthma. So they had a constellation of problems. 
They happened to work for a guy who owned a furniture store in Youngstown, Ohio. They had moved from New York because there were no jobs in New York. They moved here. And this guy was a vegetarian. And he had a slant board. And he had a juicer. And he, he kind of was one of these early health zealots. And, and, um, and he said to my parents, you know, Max and Ruth, you know, there's, I'd like to take you to a lecture to a guy, two guys that are speaking in Cleveland. And that's where Dr. Shelton and Dr. Benish were both speaking at a, at a lecture at Dr. Gross from New York. And, you know, just kind of we were talking off the air about Dr. Anthony Lim, how for some people, bing, it just clicks and, and it makes sense. And, hey, this, this makes some sense. So they bought a slant board. They got a juicer. They got a, a humidifier for my brother's bedroom instead of using inhalers and things like that. Um, my father overcame his polio, amazingly enough, without you know, being in braces and all those for all those times. My mother still had her appendicitis, still had her appendix many years later. Um, so everything's going along and they're just, they're vegetarians. That's about the best they could, you could say for them. They were vegetarians, but they were certainly averse to drugs and medication and things like that. Kind of let the body kind of heal itself a little bit. So along comes their second son, Mark Huberman, 1951. My parents again, were pretty zealous about this, not really knowing what they were doing, not really having a lot of knowledge base, but all in almost religiously for this. So this is 1951. I come along and they don't want to give me immunization. They don't want to give me milk. They don't give me shot. They don't give me milk. They don't want to give me protein, all these kinds of things. And the pressure was enormous. My mother was trying to breastfeed me. The family were calling the health department on them. It was just a crazily a, 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 a very pressure-packed time. My mother, who was trying to nurse me, her milk spoiled. I developed projectile vomiting. This very healthy eight-pound, five-ounce baby, six months later, like five pounds, six ounces, a pack of bones. And they were pretty desperate. And they went under the care. Dr. Benish, one of our founders, was in Cleveland at the time. And he said, look, you don't have the confidence in this. I'll take Marky. Okay, God, let me take care of him. And he did. And he got my parents out of that situation, found a caregiver that could hold me, you know, remove the stress from the pressure that my mom was feeling. I think I may have had full confession, maybe a little raw goat's milk for a period of time to get through because my mother wasn't nursing. Mm -hmm. I got through it. Amazingly, I got through it. For reasons that as I look back on today, I find still sort of amazing. My parents, because I got through it, because they believed in this Sheltonian diet and health program, kind of religiously, or at least it worked for me, that's the way they decided to raise me. So they raised me on raw fruits and vegetables all my life. And all of my, certainly, uh, infant and, and, and grade school, middle school and high school years. And, um, and what was unique is that the rest of the family didn't eat that way. My brother was three years older than me. Uh, they were vegetarians, although he cheated whenever he got the chance sometimes. Um, my father still smoked for a period of time. Um, my, parent, my mother was, a, a, was a, a good vegetarian cook, but not even vegan. I mean, we weren't, we weren't even vegan. But here I was. I was raw fruits and vegetables, cashews, raisins, and all that stuff. And, and I guess as I've looked back on it, um, I guess taste is a learned behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's what I knew. 
It's what I loved. Um, it wasn't an issue of willpower for me. This is just kind of what I look forward to every day. And maybe part of the two secrets that I've sometimes said about it is that I had very loving parents. We were, we were a great family and, and food was like the smallest part of our life. We were involved in theater and politics and culture and sports and everything else. So food was just kind of a means to an end, not an end to a mean. And, um, and also my parents, um, also were, uh, recognized organic farming before people even know the word. My father had a compost pile before people did that. So they opened a health food store. So we always had the best cashew nuts, the mm -hmm. best mangoes, the best pineapples, the best avocados. So I grew up and friends of mine would come over to our house because we always, my friends enjoyed coming to our house because I had always, my snack were cashews and raisins. I always had a little, you know, before they had trail mixes, I had cashews and raisins, sometimes some dried apricots and filberts and, and kids like that. I mean, it was pretty good. And, and again, I, we were a very welcoming house. People loved coming to our house because we had a fun family. So I never, I never considered myself ostracized growing up because I lived or ate differently. Mm -hmm. um, and as I got into high school, I was on speech team. I played little league. I did all these sorts of things. And so... Here I am. <coughs> Excuse me. And no one ever mentioned to you, hey, why don't you have this cheeseburger? Or, hey, hey try this. All the time. My aunts and uncles all the time. Whenever we would go for Rosh Hashanah, we're Jewish. We go for Rosh Hashanah <coughs> or, or uh, Passover. And they would always tell me, here, have some of this. Don't tell your mom. It worked with my brother, but never worked with me. Why did, what did you say? No, thank you. Just wasn't interested. Now, it just really, it's odd as it seems. I was a very, and I think I am to this day, I'm a pretty comfortable guy in who I am in my own skin. And uh, it's kind of like my father was a lot like that. And, uh, you know, I, I um, uh, life is more than food yeah. for me. So do you still use, do you still eat um, primarily raw? So there is a story. I just got to finish the story here, I guess. So, sure, sure. so I grew up in the American Natural Hygiene Society, now called the National Health Association, and we go to annual conferences, and that certainly kept our family centered on this and kept them on, kept them on the train. Um, and conferences were always a recharging of the battery. And every year, my parents would become more involved and would and would become more evolved in their thinking, and gradually became vegan, and gradually became, you know, you used used vegetable oil and corn oil and gradually got rid of those sort of things. And, and, um, so they evolved and, but I still stayed clean. So I, I'm, I'm going along, but in the health organization, you know, I grew up with Alan Goldhammer and Joel Furman. I knew these guys when they were in college, I knew them. And I knew in listening to all of them that none of them, none of the, even the founders of the doctor ever thought that a raw food diet was necessary to sustain health. In fact, I think most people would say it's probably not even, it's kind of tough to sustain yourself in terms of energy and things like that. But you know, if you can do it, great. Certainly no harm in it, but it's tough. But nobody's saying it's a necessity. And in fact, as I grew up in the association and listening to Joel Furman and Alan Goldhammer, they're saying for many people, you know, there's actually advantages to steamed vegetables and, and kale and they make them more digestible to do those sort of things. So fast forward to... My, I'm 32 years old, 
and I'm on a vacation to Greece and Italy. Wonderful vacation. And we're touring around, and the way I always traveled, and I traveled a bit of the world, and the way I always traveled is I always had a little bag of apples and a banana and a navel orange and some cashews and raisins, and that's kind of what I did. Never really worried about restaurants, and if I was lucky to find a farm market, that's what I did. So this one particular day, though, it's, um, I'm, I'm on a, we're taking a tour from, from Rome to Naples to Sorrento to the Isle of Capri. And we left at like 6 o'clock in the morning, didn't get back till like 8 o'clock at night. And I used up my apples and my orange and my cashews, and we're wheeling back to Rome. And we stop at this restaurant outside of Rome. And this, this restaurant had nothing for me. If I, if I could have eaten a baked potato, or if I would have eaten a baked potato, I could have had a baked potato. If I would have had cooked green beans, I could have had some cooked green beans. Um, but I didn't. And I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't think it was just in my nature and didn't, frankly, even know what would happen if I did. Mm. Having, what would my system do with that if I started eating steamed vegetables and baked potatoes and corn on the cob and all those sort of things and all the great wild rice dishes that my mother made and eggplant patties? But I decided when I came back, I was hungry that night. And I thought, you know, am I doing this because I have to? Or am I doing this because this is just the only thing I've ever known? And I kind of concluded that I'm doing it because it's the only thing I've ever known. And that my peers, Alan Goldhammer, Joel Furman, none of them are telling me I needed to do this. So I decided to come home and give it a shot and see what would happen. Hmm. So I had one of those epiphany moments where I realized that I could try a baked potato and I didn't have to put it in my mouth scalding hot. I could let it cool off a little bit before I put it in. <laughs> and I did. And it was pretty good. And, um, and I thought maybe I'd gain 10, 15, 20 pounds out of all that by starting to eat baked potatoes and split pea soup and things like that. But it didn't seem to have any physiological effect on me whatsoever other than the fact that I found it satisfying. Mm. And since that day, 32 and a half years old, um, I enjoy having a cooked meal or some soup or brown rice or wild rice or, or uh, you know, the world is fortunately so much better now with the Kathy Fishers of the world, Chef AJ's making uh, all kinds of great recipes. And um, so I'm still amazingly clean. I mean, I, I still will not, uh, there's no dairy, there's no sugar, there's no oil, there's no salt um, in what I do. But I do enjoy um, baked potatoes and white yams and, split pea soup and all those sort of things. And uh, so again, that's the, that's the Mark Huberman journey. I, I, it sustained me pretty well. I, I did grow up without immunizations and, and never got the diseases that you're supposed to get because you didn't. I had my first cavity about two years ago and had a filling. <laughs> so wow. one in 66 years, I guess it's not too bad. No, not at all. Uh, well, I've been blessed. I mean, I just consider myself uh really lucky and uh that i that i have been given a uh an extraordinary health foundation um i don't think any of us guarantees perfect health but i look at i look at what i do as kind of hedging my bets prolonging my life every day um i'm pretty confident that a lot of the debilitating diseases that hit so many of my friends when i go to high school reunions and all that that's not going to be me mm -hmm. no guarantees but I think I'm doing everything I can every day with the kind of water I drink, the air I breathe, the kind of sleep I get, the kind of meals I eat, consume. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got a good shot.
Yeah, you know, it's when it reminds me of one of the my favorite quotes is from Dr. Kim Williams. And he always says, you know, I don't mind dying. I just don't want it to be my fault. So it won't be your fault. My late grandfather <laughs> used to say, my father was a health lecturer and all that. And uh, mm-hmm. very, very involved in the health industry. And he said that, you know, most people sadly don't worry about their health until after they've lost it. Mm-hmm. Or she'll hear when they come into their health food store, they say, oh, well, if I, you know, smoke this cigarette, well, I'll die five years younger or something like that. But they don't. It, right. it, it doesn't. And Dr. Esselstyn, one of my favorite quotes is called Will Esselstyn, says, you know, we all have a warranty period, at least most of us. Mm-hmm. You guys our 40s and 50s, and the bodies can take a lot. But boy, mm-hmm. if you haven't taken care of yourself during a warranty, the warranty will run out. And, mm-hmm. then and yeah. uh, so I like to keep, I, I, I look at the whole food plant-based diet, lifestyle that I'm on, as like my extended warranty. I'm, I'm, I've bought my extended warranty, and I plan on keeping it in place for a long time. Well, and that kind of brings us to your lovely wife, Wanda. And yeah. you have um, two, two daughters, correct? Well, we have three. That's kind oh, of three. One that you raised, a, a niece. We each had a child of prior marriage. Um, okay. And, uh, but I adopted Wanda's daughter. And then we've had the privilege of raising my niece, who's, uh, who's just a great kid. Um, and we raised her for, since she was about 10. She's now 26 or 27. Oh. And, great kid. and so we've got three girls. I never figured out the secret of guys, and, you know, but. Uh, I've got one girl and two boys. Um, but. Yeah, they're in their twenties now. They're amazing. I know all about. I know all about girls' baseball and swimming and dance. And mm-hmm. I'm an expert on everything female. <laughs> so, how did you? I mean, when you met your wife, was she plant-based already? Did you raise your children that way? Because you had two different kiddos from different marriages. How did that work? Uh, you know, it was interesting. I mean, she wasn't at all, and and I think part of my uh, kind of philosophy in life is that I'm not a proselytizer about health. If somebody uh, interviews me like you are, or if one of my peers and, you know, people on the school board or somewhere that I serve ask me about what I do, I'll talk to them all day long if they want. But if not, I don't, I kind of do it by example. Uh, that's kind of why I think the way you should do everything in life or by example, than trying to proselytize or badger somebody. So when one and I met, um, we were, uh, you know, we had both been just recently divorced and uh, kind of a uh, too long of a story, but how we met, but it got kind of a romantic side to it. But when we met our first date, actually, she um, had heard that I was a vegetarian, but she didn't, she was raised on a tobacco farm in the South. And she didn't know anything about this stuff. And, and, uh, but we get, she knew I was Jewish and that was kind of the most unique thing maybe about me. But she, when we met, uh, before going to a, a, a show at a community playhouse, she knew I was vegetarian, so she had wine and cheese tray for me. And I, you know, nothing that I did, but I didn't make any big deal about it. You know, I just think, you know, it's, oh, it's interesting. It's not what I do. And we just chatted and all that. And so I suppose the, uh, maybe where I won her over a little bit is that uh, she worked nearby where I lived. And so during the lunch hour, she would always come home and I'd make the best fruit salads and the best vegetable salads. And I said, yeah, sure, I'm making it with you. And I know how to do that really well. And, um, and that was pretty good. And then another little hook was that she, her, her daughter, our daughter, was obese when we first met her, at least pleasingly plump when she was little, mm-hmm. and wandered into my health food store, uh, my father's health, my parents' health food store. And they talked, gave her the book Sugar Blues and talked to her about how, you know, a vegetarian diet, and, you know, is a way you could avoid surgeries and things like that and lose weight. And so her daughter, she 
kind of went on a vegetarian diet and lost lots of weight. And so that was kind of impressive. My wife, I would say, is that I've often thought that there's sometimes two kinds of people in the world. There are those that are kind of medically oriented. They're just kind of like, they want the doctor for everything. Give me something, give me something to take. And then there's those that are kind of like, don't like needles and are skeptical of medication. And fortunately, my wife was kind of one of those who really didn't like, uh, didn't like blood drawn to this day, doesn't like blood drawn. Uh, so, you know, she was just kind of skeptical and kind of, op- I guess I would describe that there's people that are open and there are people that are closed minded mm-hmm. health and things. Mm-hmm. And I think she was always open. So it was just kind of gradual and, and we took our time and she started coming to conferences with me and had the privilege of meeting, you know, Lisa Furman and Jennifer Goldhammer and people, Jennifer Morano, you know, people raising children, same age as our kids. So that was kind of a powerful introduction. And at these conferences, you're, again, we've had these annual conferences for going back 70 years and 60 some years and, and lots of like-minded people eating the right kind of food. So over time, it's a journey. You know, she was not like me. She was in the pleasure trap like so many other people. When you're raised, you're conditioned to like certain foods. And mm-hmm. so I, um, I like to say that, you know, when we got married a couple of years after we met, um, I was always supportive. We always had good salads and things like that. But I would say that Wanda had um, the health food, junk food, the Amy's pizzas. It was vegan. I would buy the organic coffee. I would get the, the soy creamers, the organic soy creamers, and, and a lot of those sort of things. Um, so it was a journey. So she went to True North once to deal with some stress in the family. So she did that. So then that was part of the journey, you know, the eyes opening a little more. And uh, the eyes continue to open, and, and it's a journey, again, for I think most people. And finally, in 2011, um, she was really, she worked in a high-pressure job, and she just decided that, um, that you know, that life is more than money and more than, uh, you know, a good, uh, a, a good company. And that she said, you know, she knew Alan. She knew what was right, but you just got to make the commitment. So she called Alan, Alan Goldhammer said, you know, I want to come out there. And she bought a one-way ticket. And fortunately, um, the company valued her highly. So they, they, they let her, they, they did not, uh, they allowed her to take this sick time and all that short-term mm-hmm. leave. And, and, um, and that's where uh, she kind of got SOS, salt oil sugar, had to go. That was the pleasure trap triad that had to go. She also kind of for the first time figured out exercise and, and, and giving some time for herself. So she came back and did Pilates. She fasted uh, 19 days, I believe. Wow. Um, but then, you know, it just shifted. And she came back, the refrigerator, the pantry was empty of all the health food, junk food. Um, and it was just, you know, that was her aha moment. And I would say uh, by anybody that sees Wanda, she's younger than when I met her. She's probably as strict, if not stricter than I am these days, quite passionate. And I think what I admire about it is that I think it's, you know, for somebody like me who doesn't know any better, kind of brought up the way, never got started on any other way of living, that, that's not such a challenge to resist the pressures and temptations of life. But for other people, that's a lot. That's a lot. And to make fundamental change like that is an extraordinary um, human quality um challenge undertaking and uh i feel 
like um, I've often said, I think I, I've just kind of died and gone to heaven because to share this, I mean, I would have done what I did anyway, but you know, when we travel to have to go to a whole food salad bar because Marky wants to go to the whole food salad bar mm-hmm. rather than, you know, even a vegetarian restaurant or something like that. We now share that. And that's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Right. When we travel to share that to come from the same reference point is, um, you know, who would have thunk? Right. And we've been yes. married 26 years and it's better than ever. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. It, yeah. We transitioned six years ago and we've been married 25 years and, um, I did it literally overnight, overnight, like overnight. (laughs) My husband ended up losing 65 pounds. All the kids are plant-based now. My daughter's fiance is plant-based. She's in medical school. He convinced his parents to go plant-based. So what's really fun is to see the ripple effects. So now you have your wife on board. Are your children also all plant-based? No, um, my, my, uh, my daughter of my first marriage has always been vegetarian, but she's kind of gourmet. And um, so I, I, I think she's um, uh, kind of a wannabe vegan one of these days. But she's just, you know, some people are just blessed with health. And she lives in New York City. She's a you know, starving artist and all that. And she, she writes plays and she's just living her dream in New York. And she rides her bike across the Queensboro Bridge. She rides everywhere, walks everywhere. So she's blessed with a, you know, seems blessed with a pretty good constitution. She knows what to do when she gets sick. She knows, you know, the water fast or the juice fast or she just knows. So she's blessed with it. My older daughter, you know, that's a, that's a, that's more of a challenge. She's hasn't escaped the pleasure trap. She knows what to do. And one day, I think that's what I've always thought about this way of living. Uh, my mother once said, you know, the toughest people to sometimes convince are those closest to you. And it breaks your heart when you see them do what they do, but you got to have the, you, you, you can't force your way. Is that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Broadway, a, a frustrated musical comedy actor. And one of my favorite songs was from uh, the musical, The Fantastics, that I did uh, back when. And there's a song that says, never say no. Why do the kids do something like that? They do it because you said no. And so I, you, know, you, you try to set the best example you can. My older, my niece that we've raised, uh, she's the most interesting uh, story. She, she's a strong-willed, strong-minded kid. She knows so when she comes home, she often raids our soups and our cantaloupe and things like that. She knows. And she said that when, before she gets pregnant, she and my wife, we're paying for it, but she plans on going out to True North a month or two before she gets pregnant to be as clean as possible when she brings a child into the world. And she's already figured out that my wife is going to be uh, helping raise this child. <laughs> but she's a strong-minded kid. So, uh, you know, so that's, the, that's where the three of them fit in the scheme of things. Yeah, it is tough. So when I came home, because I had a patient encounter that was really cool, um, and did this, I mean, I threw everything out literally overnight. And so at home, completely plant-based, and then we'd go out, um, you know, people would order what they want. So the kids would order their steak still or their meat or whatever dishes they wanted. And what was interesting was over the course of about a year, hmm, they're ordering the tofu instead of the meat dish. I'm like, but you know, I, I tend to be a little bit more, 
I am a proselytizer. <laughs> Maybe it's the doctor in me. I don't know. I just feel like there's such an urgency because I've seen the path of destruction with chronic disease over and over and over again. Over well, the last yeah, you have the years. benefit of being a doctor. That does yeah, that's true. A little bit of credibility. <laughs> Honestly, I almost think the doctor should have the least credibility because we don't, you know, those of us who, you know, in traditional as an MD, when you go to medical school and you don't, obviously you understand, we don't get that training. And we, we have this mindset that we know what we're doing. And so I think it's almost harder. I don't know. There's this balance, right? So I think doctors can definitely have credibility. And if they're trained correctly and understand and read the science, they'll be convinced of a plant-based diet is the way to go. But then there's this other egotistical component of being a physician. Like, Oh, I already know what I need. I'm a doctor. I've, I write scripts. I do this, you know, because I've certainly ran into that with colleagues. Others that are like, whoa, that's really cool. What's going on? Others take a little convincing. They're kind of in the middle, you know, you're slow transformers. But then there's these others. It's just super difficult. I mean, I've had, I've had colleagues unfriend me on Facebook because I talk about plant-based diet on there and explain and share studies and they just don't like being told what they don't want to be told. Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately I think that, um, again, using as a reference point, my growing up in the 50s and the 60s mm-hmm. uh, and being, you know, a bunch of chiropractors kind of advocating this kind of heretical extreme diet to mm-hmm. today, where the number of people like you are increasing uh, exponentially. And you know, we have a long way to go. I mean, we have a long, long way to go. But there's certainly for people that want the information, it's there on, on so much more of a credible level. I never would have dreamed in growing up that I would see a documentary like Forks Over Knives, What the Health, uh, Game Change that's coming out. You know, one after the other, they're coming out, and they're not just, these aren't um, sensational kind of movies. These are with great articulate spokesmen of our health. It's not like even supersized me that was just kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. having some fun. This is, this is really giving great credibility to this movement that's making it much more um, uh, less, less extreme. Right. And, and uh, I, I agree. Uh, we're more open to it. So you're, you're not coming from, a, from some extreme reference point anymore. Certainly being vegan uh, is, a much, is a much more socially acceptable, respectable thing. Although I got to say, that that vegan, as you know, um, plant-based Mori Barbas, um, had nothing to do with health. And often it's so far from health, it's just, what the health? It's it's really something. I was just, uh, we had the NHA had a, uh, <coughs> had a, uh, a, a booth, a vendor booth, at the recent Michigan and Cleveland Veg Fests. Mm-hmm. And the Michigan Veg Fest was extraordinary. Joel Furman and Joel Kahn were speakers. They spoke to 2,000 people. It was extraordinary. It was really just a great moment. The Cleveland Veg Fest was not quite of that kind of quality, although Kim Williams was there, so that was Yeah, you know, I spoke but, to him about that, actually. What, of all the vegan food, and there was one food vendor after another, what was the most popular vendor table at the v- Cleveland Vegan uh, Cleveland Veg Fest? Vegan donuts. The line was snaked around the building for vegan donuts. There was nothing healthy about them whatsoever. And when they ran out, they didn't even make them on site so you could even see what they were doing. When they, when they were out, when they ran out, people waited in line an hour to the next delivery of them. 
and and as I as we went down the road of one one uh, vegan uh, vendor after another, there was nothing that we could eat. There was nothing without added oil, salt, or sugar. There was a smoothie place. I guess we could get some, a smoothie, but it's sad that I mean it's good that again promoting a vegan lifestyle is is great. I mean it's better for the environment. It's certainly better for the animals and all that. But in terms of health, it's it's an unfortunate. I don't want to say distraction, but it, well, it's, I, I, I sometimes wonder if this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's a good thing. Again, a good thing for the animals. It's a good thing that it's making dieting and going to a restaurant much more socially acceptable to ask for, you know, an alternative meal. Mm-hmm. That's good. But boy, there's a dark side to it all. I think. There, and I think that's, and, you know, I spoke to Dr. Williams because I speak to him regularly because we're working on the journal together. And um, what's interesting, the journal, someone doesn't know yet, it's the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention that we're promoting or launching with the Nutrition Project. And Dr. Kim Williams is our editor-in-chief and I'm the managing editor. That is way cool. Lots of work, but way really cool. Um, with that, you're absolutely right because he spoke, he says, you know, I spoke at the the Cleveland Veg Fest, and he goes, it was, it was really disturbing to see all the vegan junk food. And, you know, it's really a good point to bring out because people, when I, I don't say the word vegan very often, unless I'm in front of a vegan audience and speaking to that effect. Um, the reason is because they can, right? You can have soda and, you know, vegan donuts and Oreo cookies and still remain vegan. Exactly. Exactly. And the unfortunate thing is, I think my, my greatest concern is as this movement begins to take off when people are going, I'm vegan, and they don't understand even those transitional foods are unhealthy, like the Amy's pizzas and the different things. What can happen is they're still going to get sick. And that's going to invalidate many of the things that we're claiming, right? Because people don't make that distinction between a whole foods plant-based diet and a vegan diet. And that's really, really important. So that's really why I try to express whole foods, whole foods, well, that's <laughs> not why like the vegan Alan junk Hammer. food. Alan Goldhammer coined the term vegan SOS. I think that's pretty good. It is whole food. It's plant-based. It's vegan. But it's without added soil, oil, and sh- soil, uh, salt, oil, and sugar. And you take those mm-hmm. three things out, most of your healthy vegan food. It has added oil, salt, and sugar. If it's vegan, it's not having dairy, but it's got all kinds of sugar in all its iterations from maple syrup to agave mm-hmm. to you know what, who knows what. Right. But right. if you can, you know, so I think that, again, and, you know, the, the term vegan certainly is, is an important concept in the world. And, you know, exponents of veganism like uh, Victoria Moran and, and Neil Bernard and Frank Sabatino, uh, and Michael Clapper, they they bridge that really well, and they give it the respect that I think, and the, the philosophic integrity that I think it deserves. I consider myself a vegan. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I just my concern is the vegan eating part of the world is mm-hmm. is just so compromised that it's mm-hmm. unfortunate. Yeah, but I, I, the nice, yeah, no, the one of the things that it is bringing though is the attention to food. And food as that we're not, you know, I listened to, I love Ted Hour podcasts and there was one and that I listened to is how the world is interconnected, right? So it's not just, um, 
you and me and the separate communities and humans and the rest of the, but how our, our influence on a very specific um, environment. So there was a, there was one in particular, this gentleman, he um, became enthralled with rewilding where they introduce a species that may have been removed from an environment and then reintroduce, for example, the, the wolves in Yellowstone. And what they mentioned was how you introduce a small pack of wolves and how that, because when they had been removed, they had the deer that were overgrown, then they ate too much vegetation. It changed the rivers, even how they flow because of the integrity of the, the land around it, which decreased, I mean, all these ripple effects. And so when they reintroduced the wolves, how things changed in a very short period of time. You know, ecosystems changed. More birds came because there were more trees because of the land and wasn't being eaten by all the deers and all these different, I mean, multiple things just happened. And I think about that to us in this environment when we're, we're talking about food, but it brings attention to food, right? We're bringing it to the attention of how it affects our health and our long-term, not on our our personal, but what's going on with our communities and our nation's health, the economy, the ability to do things. Well, we have a national presence in places that we need to be because we have an, a military that can sustain, that we can sustain. I was in the, I was active duty. So I, I've seen patients, you know, or, you know, individuals get kicked out because of t diabetes and sleep apnea. Those are things, those are just small things. Like, you know, the shortened lifespan, kids are getting sick younger. I mean, there's just so much. And then the environmental, then the animal. And then the planet. Right. And imperative. It's absolutely imperative. So there's not a there's there's not a second chance here, folks. So, you know, and I I didn't really understand that. You know, when we're raised in especially in the United States, I mean, I've been to Africa, I've been to South America, I've been to the Middle East, I understand the challenges of life in general but when we live here because we have everything at our fingertips we have amazon <laughs> i can order food i do not have to step outside of my house for anything i mean i can have my food delivered i can have laundry detergent delivered i have water i have everything i need literally here but so that isolates us to the rest of the world right we're not socializing with our neighbors we're not understanding that they're struggling with whatever that it's, it's so much that we're just, we're so given everything that we don't understand the value of the nature and the world that we live on, that we're extracting all of these things from. And I never really understood that until I changed my diet to a plant-based diet because veganism in the, in the true sense of the veganism with the environment and the animals really turned my light on to my, to my thought process. And it just like, wow, it changed my paradigm of viewing the world that I'm not just a human living this existence that there's so much more and I'm a Christian. And so I, that I should have known that already. I should understood that, but I didn't. And so that really even breaks my faith even more precious to me. So I understand so much more about teachings that I see in the Bible about that type of thing. So really fascinating uh, transformations in people. I know I become much more humble in the fact that like, Lori, your decisions every day make it make a make an impact, and how you talk to people is just really amazing. That's what I enjoy is the the human growth, right? I consider that I'm I feel like I'm a better adult. <laughs> I'm adulting better now that I'm I'm 
vegan in the sense of that. Dr. Shelton, Dr. Shelton wrote again, you know, way long time ago, long before people were popularizing a lot of these concepts. And he, I remember a chapter wrote one of his books about, about um, hunting and about brutalizing behavior creates brutalizing personality. And I I mean, I I think obviously you you can't oversimplify that, but as, as a general concept, I think if we all didn't kill for food, we'd be, we'd be a lot more sensitive about each other. I, I think if we weren't, if we thought about, thought about, you know, where our, you know, our uh, leather belts come from and our leather shoes and things like that. And we thought about, and unfortunately, you know, getting exposed by uh, getting light being shined on these slaughterhouses that are outside of where we all see, but when we see how that happens. I think we'd be a more, uh, a more a gentle humanity if we if we adopted a vegan lifestyle, not only would it be better for the animals, it'd be better for us. I've always believed that. I, I you know, not that I know that every hunter are 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 uh, are are, uh, are brutal, you know, or or, or, or people that are going to be murderers or axe murderers or anything like that. But I just think, in the bigger scheme of things, we'd be a, a more humane world. We'd be more sensitive to each other. If we weren't involved in 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 that in, in killing for food, I think you're exactly right because it brings out it makes you reflect on things that you are doing on a daily basis and how it affects not only the earth but others. I think I've certainly become more compassionate in my sense of, of how um, others I interact with others because um, one. I'm not just now for, as a physician, for example, I wanted to become a doctor since I was 10 years old when my little sister was very ill and got well from a physician. Um, and it was just so amazing at the age of 10 to think, wow, I want to do that. I want to make people well. And it wasn't from an egotistical standard of like, I'm going to be saving the world, but it was like, how cool to be a part of someone doing better. And what happened was in medical school, you kind of, you, it's a survival mode, number one, <laughs> to get through medical school, especially 20 years ago, and or even before that for some people. Um, but what's interesting is that you become so indoctrinated that you know the information, you do an intervention, be it a drug or a surgery, and that fixes it. And so that is kind of the training, right? So it's not the compassionate, listening, sharing you know, certainly there's parts of that, but they don't focus on that. There, there's so much to learn about the body, the physiology, the disease, the pharmacology, all of these different things, that that's what you're focused on. So when you go into practice, you're thinking, okay, I have the tools now to make people well. That's what's going to happen. So then when you sit down, you start writing scripts for diabetes and they continued over five years. And yet you're controlling numbers, you're following guidelines, but they continue to get, you know, worse and worse and require more and more. Um, it's, it's kind of disheartening and it's, 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 uh, it's, it's frustrating. No, you would have um, been, you would have been right comfortable with the hygienic physicians of old of Dr. Shelton. <laughs> they looked at the whole, whole body. And I think unfortunately mm-hmm. what has happened with modern medicine is that even those physicians that are in family practice, you know, have refer everybody out for all these special things. There's no real captain in charge. Uh, it's a sad commentary on our being. That's what I find is so amazing about it place like true north you know it's mm-hmm. kind of like a hospital where you can go but you get comprehensive care there's mm-hmm. somebody in charge of everything and mm-hmm. you, you know, all these complementary physicians can you know weigh in and bring the benefit of their special training and unique perspectives and all that but 
there's one person. I remember when my mother broke her hip at age 90 and it had been the first time I'd been in a hospital and had to deal with that. You know, you, you go to the cast person to do this. You go to the physical therapy person. The surgeon, gifted, gifted human being, would put my 90-year-old mother back together again like that. You never see her again until the exit conference, you know, like six months later. Mm. There's something wrong with that system where, you know, the, the psychology of the surgery is as big a part of, of, of healing and recovery, but that's not how we work. There's the cast person, and whether it's the, whether it's the dermatologist or it's this, there's so, everything is so um, specialized. Well, you know, really lost something. But there's a reason for that, right? Because let's think, even when I started, you know, I finished my, I, I, we got married. I stayed home for six years. I had my three kids. I went back to medical school. They were five, three, and 10 months old. So, you know, so it's, oh, I'd say over 15 years that I've had experience in the healthcare phys- as a physician. Um, what's happened is that even in the short time that I've been a physician, you're seeing a more complicated patient. So, you know, and where I was in Colorado, where I spent, I was in the Air Force in Virginia, then I was in Colorado. I trained in Texas, but in Colorado, it was a small space. So we didn't have, I didn't have endocrinologists down the street. I, I, there was one infectious disease specialist on the entire side of Western Colorado. There was zero pediatric intensive care units on the West side of that state. There's still to this day, and you have to fly someone to Denver. So I, I got the full spectrum. So I had to be the captain of the ship for my patients. I did inpatient, outpatient, <laughs> did everything. So, and that's how I was trained in traditional family medicine. But the problem is when I start getting these elderly patients or even now younger patients, you have severe diabetes, you have someone who needs this possibly renal dialysis, you have this COPD, you have all of these horrible things that then someone who does see a specialist, they add more medications. And you have, it's just, you know, an hour visit's not even enough to, to go through the medications and say, is this a potential side effect that's causing, I mean, it's become so complicated that you have to segment or compartmentalize our health. But then I was like, something is wrong with this people. It is not normal to be sick. And we forget that because we get so entrenched in this, this trying to keep our heads above water in managing all these complicated patients. I mean, it's, you know, that's the it's genius. insane. It's the genius of, again, the hygienic physicians that I grew up with, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that were the peers of Alan Goldhammer and Frank Sabatino and Joel Furman, these kinds of guys that, um, that were, uh, that they recognized that the body is really, you know, does heal itself if given, given the chance. And mm-hmm. it's self-correcting. The body does work, again, mm-hmm. to a point where, you've, where we've so broken ourselves down that, you know, dialysis is the only route you got. But Hopefully that's not where most of us are. The body has right. so much ability and so much capacity to repair itself, to heal itself. I find mm-hmm. the most amazing thing to me today is the, 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 when Frank Sabatino and these guys are writing about the science of epigenetics, that you've got mm-hmm. these, you know, that yes, Angelina Jolie has a history of breast cancer in her family. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have both your breasts cut off. You really do mm-hmm. have the ability to turn those genes on and off that even not only can you not only can you prevent heart disease, you can reverse heart disease through a whole plant-based diet. This is pretty impressive stuff, and and it all goes back to the fact that the body, if given half a chance, really has amazing capacities to heal. I often say sometimes, you know, people don't think twice about it. if you get a cut on your wrist, you put a bandaid on it, it heals. It just kind of closes up and it heals. 
and if it's not too big, even without stitches, somehow people don't think that it works that way inside. But it does work that way inside. Inflammation. Things, those things, if given a shot or if given, uh, given a, a lifestyle and a diet and lifestyle, you, you really can healthcare, self-care can be healthcare. It really can. Health can result from healthful living. That's what we've been right. teaching NHA for 70 years. Mm -hmm. Now science See, is validating that. Yes, I'm hoping to be a part of that. So the thing, though, however, is physicians don't understand that. More and more are. Well, yes, trust me. I'm one of the most positive optimistic about it, trust me. But there are plenty who do not. And I, I will echo Dr. McDougall's sentiment on that. But however, when you think about it, we don't understand that when you're trained, right, to do medications, interventions, we don't understand that there is a way to feed the body that will highlight those abilities and regeneration and disease reversal and or disease or you know health optimization. We don't understand that there's that optimal health or, or nutrition because there's so much. And trust me, I am a conservative person, <laughs> financially, whatever, more whatever. There, but there are so much. Um, it's so frustrating with big corporations and the government and their advertising. We're hitting us all the well, time, right? Yeah. Oh, and it's so frustrating because physicians are just uh, as likely to be affected by that. And you know, if I hear one more person describe the paleo diet and eat protein, ugh, you know, I'm just like, for goodness sake, <laughs> you just but want to scream what? at someone. Who we are, yeah. who we are, through this vehicle <laughs> that you know financially costs very little to project. Right. Um, right. We were just when the when the documentary uh, "Eating You Alive" was just reintroduced, you know, we rented mm -hmm. a theater locally, and the place yep. was packed, and you were yep. able to show that. So I think I guess where my great optimism is that mm -hmm. for those that want the information, it's never been more readily available. For those that want right. to find a Lori Marvis of the world, or or uh, or um, uh, or Kathy Paget here in Youngstown, Ohio, or Alan Goldhammer at True North. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the opportunities are there like never before through vehicles like the internet, through film, through these, as for all the garbage and all the noise that's out there, all the confusion, mm -hmm. there's never been more good information available. And for that, I'm eternally optimistic. But you almost have to have Definitely an enlightened... Try to eat at the salad bar. And the salad bars, the fruits and vegetables are about it. You can't even yeah. get brown rice anymore. It's right, like, exactly. I know. That I mean, but yeah, absolutely. But the thing, the point is here is that we don't even know to be asking that question. So that's, you know, it was a patient who came to me and said, meat and dairy upset my stomach. And I said, stop eating meat and dairy, not thinking that left her a plant-based diet. She got better, but her daughter went on the diet with her, comes back in 30 days and pulled herself off two ADD meds. It never even dawned on me. And I consider myself a really inquisitive individual, open to learning, that when she was able to do that at 16 and pull herself off two ADD meds with all she did was stop meat and dairy, I was like, what in the world? And the mom brought her back to that appointment. I was like, she goes, what happened, Dr. Mar? I was like, I don't know, but that's just, it just blew my mind that that could even be a question to be asked. 
I mean, that is the key because I, if we can get in front of enough of physicians, and I think we got to start with the medical students, right? Because I'm a mom of a medical student. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's so Clapper. important. That's, that's Dr. Clapper's mission right now in his rewiring. Is. is to try to be available or try to Second reach Second evolution. Out. Yeah. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely critical. And I think, you know, there's another important part of that too, is helping uh, medical students and physicians understand the value of their mental and spiritual health too, right? Because there's such burnout and there's, we have the highest rate of suicide of any profession. And I, 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 I just, it's, it's devastating because I know people who've done this and others who've been affected. And it's just, so heart-wrenching to say there is such a different way. Because um, I will tell you, I've been to the American Academy of Family Practice uh, conferences. I've been to Plantation Project or Dr. Bernard's conference, to the Esselstyn Farm. There is such a difference in the communities to the two different ones, which we need to bring up your conferences coming up. I mean, that is incredible, right? Just the community because you, you're focused on thriving and health and my patients get better and yours get better and let's share these stories. And if we have struggles, how can we make them even better with what we work, what we can work with? I mean, that is such a different, it's a different environment. It's a different energy. I mean, it's a, yes, energy. It's the vibration is so, it's, it's just like, I feel like I'm walking, my husband goes, you're going to your tribe. It's like, yes, well, I'm going to my about, tribe. Think about this. So you've been going to the plant fishing project and you've mm-hmm. gone to Bernard's uh, great, great programs that he does, and, mm-hmm. and uh, the Esselstyn Two Forks program. They're great. The National Health Association, we've been doing this since 1949 was actually our first conference. And the flock was much smaller in those days than it is mm-hmm. today. But, you know, there are so many great exponents of it now. There are more communities for people to reach out to and link up to. There are plant-based Clevelands, plant-based Michigans, plant-based. There are the the uh, the um, the Campbell pods that they have in various places. There are mm-hmm. you know, more and more people are connecting to those things, and and you know they're certainly helpful because it can be a pretty lonely life mm-hmm. trying to follow a plant. Even if you're really passionate about it, even if you really believe it, it can be a lonely undertaking. And um, mm-hmm. and I think having that sense of community, I think that's what John McMahon and the I Thrive series. I think John is trying uh, yeah. to help people gain that sense of community and the confidence that comes from that and the determination that comes from that. But again, my great uh, source of pride is that the National Health Association has been having those kinds of communities and having those kind of connections for a very long time. And we have one, mm-hmm. uh, if I may, i give a little plug. Please. No, yes, absolutely. And I'll put a link. The Cleveland yes. Airport Marriott where there will be 300 like-minded people uh, with your meals, all vegan SOS, the gold standard of eating. Uh, And you'll have in one weekend, Dr. Joel Furman, Dr. Alan Goldhammer, Dr. Joel Kahn, Frank Sabatino, um, uh, Stefan Esser, uh, Pam Popper from Wellness Forum, who's just one of the brightest ladies I've ever met in my life. Um, They're all going to be there for this one weekend. And and, um, you'll have all your meals included. The, air, the, the hotel rate that we have at the Cleveland Airport Marriott is $89 a night. You can't do any wow. better than that. Um, awesome. It will be a real sense of community. If anybody has ever gone to a True North extravaganza at, at True North that he does over the holiday, that Alan Goldhammer does at the holidays, this is like that on steroids. 
because you're going to have so many more people. Rather than 60, you're going to have, you know, 260. And um, right. it's a great opportunity. And, uh, and again, you know, in terms of, of seeing the best of the best uh, and being inspired by them uh, is really something. And, and, and every, every time we have one of these conferences, a number of young physicians show up because they've kind of heard about it, they want to know more about it, and uh, they're there, and then they get inspired, and they become part of that community too as physicians. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We had a, 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 an incredible event last year, and we're going to have like twice as many this year. And uh, we got, it's $550 for the weekend, um, and that includes all your meals. And you won't have to think twice about the kind of meals here. You won't have to ask, and they'll all be yes. SOS. And it'll be great. And there really are uh, uh, a, um, it just makes it that much more fun. So I hope people consider um, if, if they want to have a great weekend, just a vacation where they won't have to cook, have to think about their meals and be inspired by the best of the best. This would be a great weekend to uh, put on your calendar. But if they can't do that, yeah. if they can't do that, one of the unique things that we do in the National Health Association is we publish a magazine. It's the only thing we do. Uh, we don't sell anything. We don't sell pills, potions, vitamins. We don't sell anything. We just sell information. And we publish, we've published for over 30 years, a 40-page magazine called Health Science, which is, mm-hmm. the name is because we look at health from a science standpoint, uh, and ours is kind of the gold standard of health. It's a 40-page uh, magazine with no advertising, nothing, mm-hmm. just articles and interviews with Joel Furman and John McDougall and, and, uh, and Michael Clapper and Neil Bernard. Uh, people like Lori Marvis, those are the people that write for it on a regular basis and testimonials and stories to kind of help you keep part of that community. And there's also in every issue, there are recipes by the vegan SOS top chefs of the world, the Chef AJs and Kathy Fishers and, and Katie Mays. Um, so you get that. And, and when you join the NHA, which is only $35 a year, you get the magazine as a, a subscription to that is included. And when you join and you register on our website, you can register and gain access to 30 years of back issues for nothing, as well as eBooks of the, of some of the classics of the natural hygiene movement are available for free for download. So 35 bucks a year. And if people who are watching this uh, want to uh, uh, get a sample of just how good it is, uh, they can uh, email and mark you M Huberman at healthscience.org. Mention that they saw your show and I'll email them the latest issue of Health Science Magazine, which I'll hold up, that happens to have a feature interview with Chef AJ. And she has a brand new book out, and it's a blast of an interview. It's got great articles. It's got an article by Dr. Sachilla Vares at True North on what's up with sugar and all the different mm-hmm. kinds of sugar they are. Pam Popper has a great article on should men have a PSA test and dealing with prostate. Just some great, wonderful testimonials. So if they email mhuberman at healthscience.org or just visit healthscience.org, they mention uh, Dr. Marvis, and I'll be glad to send them yeah. a if they like it, and that can, they'll get a hard copy uh, if they join. I will definitely put all your in your poor email here. Hope you're ready. That'd be great. No, it's, I'll yeah, definitely. It's my pleasure in life. You know, we don't. Uh, it's unique in the NHA is that mm-hmm. we don't sell anything. We're not doctors. I'm not trying to sign up patients. We mm-hmm. just sell knowledge because this has been what my whole life is all about. My greatest joy. Uh, in my retirement, I just retired after 30 years as a judge, magistrate. Um, it's shining a spotlight on the great work that Joel Furman, Alan Goldhammer, Lori Marbus, all these people are doing. That's what I, that's my mission in life. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and precept. to be a part of it. Yeah. It's what? It's it's my mission in life. It's a great That's source. Awesome. Of yeah. And I think that is, um, it's awesome. One that it's just like your life was preparing for this moment, right? You're, you were just setting foundations as you moved along. And cause you've been involved with this for so long since you oh, yeah. were like 18 it's, or something. It's a, great, it's a great sense of pride that I consider. Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm a lawyer, a judge, mm-hmm. lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Won't hold that I against you. I consider myself a peer and a, and a great personal friend with Joel yeah. and Adam and Doug Lyle mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and um, Coldwell and John. Mm-hmm. And that's just a, that's a really rewarding place to be in life and to be at, mm-hmm. at this stage of my life, retired to do what I love, what I believe mm-hmm. in, what my life has been defined by. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. And, and what's exciting is that I think the National Health Association, even though we've been around for 30 years and really mm-hmm. should are the fathers and mothers of the whole food plant-based diet movement of today. Nobody knows about us. At least not a lot of people know about us. But through shows like this, I did an interview with Chef AJ. It's been viewed over 8,000 times. And people are joining the NHA uh, every time I refresh my inbox. Somebody new is joining. And that's awesome. So, yeah. you know, yeah. long yeah. Could keep, as Dean Martin used to say, keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and so you're absolutely right. And I think that's a fabulous mission. And I thank you for your service to bringing health to individuals. I think that's amazing. So it makes my day when I bump into people like you. <laughs> I mean, it would be, you know, these are just resources we need to get in front of the people who can make even a bigger change, right? Because I'm a big fan of like studying sociology and positive psychology and the different things. So I consider physicians, I really want to get involved with education with, with medical students at some point. Um, what happens is I, you know, you have this social networks, right? And so what is it like six degrees of separation between everyone on earth or something like that? So what they found is in studies, which I'm sure you're aware of that is even people you don't know, but if they're two, you know, points away from you because your friends, your sister's best friend happens to be obese, you're more likely to be obese. So I'm thinking, well, imagine physicians. So we have contact with probably on average of 1,500 to 2,000 patients annually with typically your panel. If they were sharing this message and it was sent out and then one person changed it and, you know, geez, that ripple effect could be so amazing, but we have to get in front of them early. These medical students, that's, that's it for me. That seems well, to be my know, mission. And I think that, that what you're doing and what mm-hmm. Alan I think all, almost everyone in the whole food plant-based health movement, they're back to what, again, the early hygienists saw their role as physicians, as teachers. You're mm-hmm. teaching people how to live, not just getting them well. You're teaching them how right. to prevent themselves from getting sick and let alone right. know what to do when they do get sick, how to recover their health. But it's all about teaching people that healthcare really is self-care. Health does result from healthful living. You, can, you don't have to be dependent on the doctor mm-hmm everything that goes wrong. That's, that's real. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And that right there is a whole nother can of worms that you could go to, you know, open up. I mean, when you start speaking about patients and um, the culture of, you know, not taking on that self-responsibility, self-care role, right. They're like, well, I can't imagine giving this up because I would need this. And, you know, I need to go to the doctor, just give me my pill. I mean, it's, it's, it's really frustrating for me sometimes when I'm 
presents this potential life-saving information to someone and they just brush you off. I mean, I don't push it, but it, you know, it's just like, ah, you know, I want to help everyone, but you can't, I understand that, but it is frustrating sometimes. You're looking for those people that are open, that will mm-hmm. be willing to listen. And fortunately, mm-hmm. there's a lot of them. There are. And you know what? I'll tell you what. I really believe um, that there's a divine entity involved here because, in my personal opinion, because when when we gave up, literally when I went home overnight and gave, literally cleaned out the whole house, plant everything plant-based after that, what we had left, we we ate vegetables and stuff. But um, there was a quarter of a grass-fed beef in my refrigerator or my freezer in the garage and I didn't know what to do with that. First of all, it costs a lot of money. And I was like, Jesus, a lot of money. But I can't give it to any human because I'm going to be killing them. <laughs> so this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, how am I going to get rid of this? Give it to an animal shelter? What am I going to do? Because you just can't throw that out in the garage. I mean, out in the your dumpster. I mean, it's a huge old carcass. We lived in Colorado. And so what happened was two days later, we left. We went to church. We came back. That freezer had broke. Okay. I don't know if you've ever wow. smelled Yes. So I never, if you know, if you've ever smelt this, this, the blood and the smell, I've never been, uh, so I was like, so in my life. Like I have never, I, I never really craved meat or like, but you know, I, it tasted fine. You know, I liked the taste. I never even thought twice about that after that incident. And, you know, I'm thinking back and going, it would have been so easy for the kids or my husband to go, Hey, we have this meat, we should use it up. And, you know, you know, after family pressures, I'm sure I would have caved at some point. I'm pretty stubborn, but I can cave. And then, you know, even though I had these amazing experiences at a lupus patient too, in that time they got, they did much better. I probably would have caved and then I would have never gone down this track. I would have never had this conversation with you, but I truly believe it. And when I have interactions with people, they're like, you know, it's so weird that you mentioned that because this happened. It was like a priming. I was like, no, there's no more coincidences. I have so many of these. They happen every single day. uh, My only uh, startling moment, kind of like along the lines of what you're talking about. When I was at University of Pittsburgh, as a freshman, you had to live in the dormitories. So here I am, this raw food, plant-based guy in 1969 at the University of Pittsburgh. And so my parents, who had a health food store, would ship me a box of produce every week. And I'd go to the Greyhound bus station, I'd pick it up and I'd bring it. So where did the University of Pittsburgh allow me to keep my box of food in the cafeteria? In the meat cooler. So I'd go in the meat cooler, and there'd be this blood from chickens and beef and all that all over the floor, and I'd have to go in there and get it. And I'm thinking... Man, I got to, after six months, I needed to get my own apartment. This was, this was tough stuff. I mean, I, <laughs> it was tough. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really, uh, meat has never really, I mean, even though I'm kind of vegan, I've never really kind of understood people eating hamburgers and roast beef. And even to this day, it's kind of funny, maybe just from my vantage point, mm. I, I don't eat veggie burgers because I'm, it's kind of like saying, well, why, if I wouldn't eat a hamburger, why would I eat a veggie burger? It just kind of doesn't fit. But, right. right. But on the other hand, uh, um, I think that when I grew up, the only thing that ever really got me, I never really judged what other people did because I just wasn't interested. But when they would, when I'd see somebody roasting a pig on a spit and there would be the head of the pig, I'm thinking, oh. there's something wrong with the world. This is really yeah. And I never I, got that. But other than that, I kind of let, yeah, you want to eat your roast beef sandwich, go ahead. 
And, right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I understand. I get it. We always, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I mean, it was, it was an interesting childhood, but we always had um, a vegetable garden. So we raised a lot of our own food, a lot of zucchini. We had a garden and a compost pile before people knew the word. Yep. I mean, we were back in the seventies. That's what we did because we didn't have the money to buy. So we didn't, we got some fruit, but not a lot of fruit. Um, just because, you know, we, what we could grow apples, neighbors, peaches, things. But, um, what's interesting, we always, they always, um, slaughtered a hog every year. And I remember witnessing that once as a child and just finding it re- really grotesque. And, um, and, but I never, you know, I never really put together the entity of a, of a life and a, and a, a feeling of an animal in that, you know what I mean? I thought it was gross in the sense of blood and guts, but it yeah, never it really, it didn't click for me. Like my daughter, when she was two, very vocal child, very um, verbal. I didn't say vocal, she's quiet demeanor, but very sweet. Um, but she, we were almost, she was almost three, but, um, We'd gone to a, a grocery store, a supermarket, and there were crabs there. You know, they, they have them there. They're alive, and you buy them in lobsters. Yeah. That's one of the things that gets me. Yeah. And so Emily, she was like, she's like, she knew, she understood this concept, even so young, super bright kid. We're in a grocery store. Why are there lobsters in a, in, a, in, a, in a glass case in the grocery store? And it's like, well, people, you know eat them and she's really upset she was just like what do you mean like she she didn't really understand the death concept of the animal that she was on her plate but that really bothered her and And um in a boiling hot water that's another yes and i never even you know i never was a big seafood fan so i never bought that stuff and cooked it so i never i'm honestly i think if i did witness that i probably would have been vegan much earlier in my life um but I, i i just I find it frustrating for myself why I didn't start, you know, these, these experiences didn't coagulate until I, it was a health change. And I wish I'd have been more perceptive as a young person about it. But and of course, you know, you can't I'm have often regrets. I guess, again, just the kind of the way the world works. I yeah. often wondered why people can slaughter a gentle cow right. and not think about it, but they wouldn't think about doing that to their dog or their horse. Somehow right. that would be right. offensive or, or cruel or something. Right. A deer, you could do a little Bambi. You could right. shoot a Bambi, but you can't. I don't know. It's just right. world, as we mentioned earlier, the world would be a lot better place. Yeah. If, if we had different food choices. Yeah, I, I agree. I definitely. It is. I, I never met a vegan until I went vegan. I mean, I don't recall ever meeting an ethical vegan and someone having that conversation with me, which is unfortunate because I think I would have been an easy convert. <laughs> if someone would have just laid out the logical conclusion for me, I was like, oh. Just means you're a late bloomer. <laughs> but it's really interesting. I've asked when I ask patients, because I, I tend to start with dairy. Dairy is a really easy one to get people to go, oh. Yeah, I never thought of that. Meat's a little more difficult. I let I let that kind of slide in later. But what I go is like, you know, what was the original intention of a cow's mother cow's milk? And they go, well, for me to drink. I was like, no, you're not a cow. Who was that for? And some patients honestly cannot think outside it. But if I'd have said a baby cat's milk, 
or a mama's cat though for the baby cats. But when they start talking about a cow, they cannot ratchet their, you know, thinking upright and go, Oh, for a mother cow to feed her baby cow. Oh wow. A calf. I mean, it, some patients it's, it's like so difficult when I say it's for the calf, they're like, Oh, I never thought of it that way. It's we're so the, you know, the advertising and the, and the environment in our culture that it's just, they're like, what? We don't need cows to live for milk. No, you don't. Dr. Shelton, <laughs> Dr. Shelton's first book was written in 1926, an oversized book called human life. It's philosophy and laws. It's a real collector's item. And um, he writes in the preface about that, about how, how difficult it is for people, physicians, as well as for people to overcome mm -hmm. generations of conditioning about how, how we're supposed to think, about how, how physicians think about the essential nature of disease and health. Mm -hmm. And for people, you know, what, what is the, the proper diet? It's been going on. If we didn't have all the advertising, if we didn't have TV, if we didn't have all that stuff, there's been mm -hmm. generations of conditioning that right. not everybody can overcome. Some people do. I mean, that's just, there, were my, there was Max and Ruth Huberman in 19... 48 and 49, you know, they just kind of light went off. You know, Lori Marvis in, in, you know, 15, 16 years into the game, it just mm -hmm. kind of wakes up. My wife, mm -hmm. the same. Um, mm -hmm. More and more, and again, more and more better information available, great resources by incredibly credible people. When you hear Caldwell Esselstyn speak, mm -hmm. how can you not be persuaded? When you see Joel Furman, well, how can you not be persuaded? Lots of people can. But, you know, if you're open at all, these are very, very credible exponents of this mm -hmm. lifestyle. Joel Furman on public television. He's mm -hmm. really good. He's really mm -hmm. evolved. He's come so far as an articulate, passionate, persuasive spokesman of this lifestyle. Um, mm -hmm. Then it's just, again, if, if, for, if, you're, if you're a little bit open, mm -hmm. give yourself half a chance. You can really be inspired. Unfortunately, you know, there's places to go like True North where you really do need, you know, to go in jail for a little while to kind of shut out the rest right. of the world to, to right. give yourself a shot. I and mean, certainly if you have a chronic condition mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah, so no, this, I, these, I, are just, these are just great times as much as, yeah. as many problems as we have politically, socially, economically, um, mm -hmm. from the standpoint of those seeking a better way in terms of health and well-being, there's never been a better time to get information. I th yeah, you're absolutely right. And I um, just, you know, when you start, then you start learning about intermittent fasting and fasting, and that's a whole nother level of amazing information and science. It's, it's, it's evolving and it's, it's incredible the opportunities we have. And I will tell you the first book I read was Dr. Um, Campbell's, you know, the China study. And I read that book in two days. That's how Intrigued. I don't know if anyone's read that book, but I mean, I read it cover to cover. It is. I was so like to live. I mean, I was like, holy moly! Are you kidding? They turn off cancer like a light switch. What? You know? And I was just like, what have I been doing? <laughs> and you know, I just because I always, I always wanted to live um, with integrity and do the best for my patients because I do think you know. it, I've. It's just, you know, and I don't know how many of your listeners know, but when I interviewed uh, Dr. Campbell in one of the issues of the magazine a couple of years ago, um, one of the things that I knew that most people don't know about uh, T. Colin Campbell that, that 
that I wasn't sure he even want to talk about or would be willing to talk about. But when the China study came out in the, in the early 90s, mm-hmm. he was, I mean, this was a big deal. And he was really in demand and all that. And one of the problems he had is that he had developed a speech impediment. He had a, a, a problem with his tongue that he couldn't speak. He had been exposed to what we now know as dioxin in some of his mm-hmm. work. And was really and had 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 reached out to one of our members of our association, came to one of our conferences, and met with Alan Goldhammer and Alec Burton and our and Frank Sabatino and these physicians, and you know said, "Hey, I got this problem." And he was just knew about dairy and protein and things like that, but he didn't really understand the whole spectrum of the whole food plant based diet movement. Certainly didn't know about water fasting. Mm-hmm. And they all talked to him and said, "You know, the body has some pretty amazing capacities." given conditions conducive to recovery that water fasting can sometimes do. So he went out to True North. I don't know if you know that story, but he went out to True North on a couple of occasions, regained his speech, which is an amazing thing. I mean, this was like in the 90s, and that's where his, when he writes a book about whole, his, his, that's, where his, that's, that's where his picture got bigger about what he was doing. He understood what was the, the, the deleterious effects of protein and dairy and, 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 and how, how that has created all these degenerative conditions. But he didn't understand the big picture until he came in contact with the National Health Association and Alan Goldhammer and began to understand the body as a whole. And it was a really interesting experience, and it's, uh, it's just great to consider him uh, kind of one of us also. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, he's one of my favorite. I, I really enjoyed my conversation with him. He's, he's deeply philosophic. He's deeply he, philosophic, too. Which is I, what I what I'm attracted to him is that lots of folks approach things from you know a medical standpoint and but he he there's a there's a philosophy that underlies everything he does and how he sees everything and when he talks about a whole it's impressive it's impressive just to listen to him he's pearls come out of his mouth just like they do Caldwell and and uh, mm-hmm. spokespeople that we're blessed to have these days absolutely. And- What's really cool is that with my position now at the journal, I get to interact with these people all the time. <laughs> it's like, this is like, this would be yeah, like a groupie. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty. I mean, you, you get to be sitting, it's like a groupie. If you were in the middle of the, you know, rock and roll hall of fame and all the rock stars were like at your beck and, you know, not beck and call, but you could reach out to them and say, Hey, I get this, you know, and they respond and they're excited to speak to you. It's like, Oh, yeah, that's like... And by the way, speaking of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if people come to our conference this year, June 29th to July 1st in Cleveland, we're arranging a trolley tour to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So if you've never done that in downtown... Really? That's worth almost the price of admission right there. And there's also a great... uh, The Cleveland, Cuyahoga Valley Metro Parks are like a hop, skip, and a jump from the hotel that we're at. We're arranging some beautiful hiking in there as well. So... Oh, wonderful. Not just good food and good speakers, but... Some also some fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, we're, um, you know, speaking of hiking, my son, uh, Gabriel, came home for a few weeks. He's uh, just finished his freshman year at CU in Colorado. He had gone. Yes, he was snowboarding. About his great recovery from that. Yes, that's what I was about to say. You know, here's Gabe, 19, going down, I don't know what to call it, double black diamond. I don't, I didn't learn to ski. But I've lived to talk about it. No, Gabe, they, they grew up, we were in Colorado. They grew up snowboarding and skiing, all the kids snowboard. And, but I was 28. The first time I got on skis, I personally do not have an adrenaline factor. I don't have that desire. I don't have that need. 
So, but the husband and the children do apparently. That's very strong genetics. And so Gabriel was going down a double black diamond, turned too late and hit a tree. And it, he said, mom, he goes, it bent back my leg originally. And then it <laughs> back, he goes, it hurt. And he screamed and, you know, but then it kind of calmed down and they took him down. I get this phone call, mom, I think I broke my leg. I just need a cast, I think. But they're going down the mountain and the call drops for 20 minutes. I'm a thousand miles away. And um, finally he gets hold of me and he can't get into this little clinic they were going to. I said, go to the ER right now, young man. <laughs> so he goes to the ER. He just ends up with two plates and 22 screws. The tibia has six fractures. The fibula is the smaller bone on this, the loroid. It's a, like parts of it are literally dust. And um, so here he is. And this, what's really interesting, he's been plant-based. He was maybe not as a healthy plant-based eater as he should have been at, at school, but he stuck with it. And what was interesting, though, when I got there, I started scouring the research about foods and you know, anti-inflammatory and bone growth and mineralization. I mean, I was diving deeper into the rabbit hole of bone health. And what was really interesting is, we, I mean, I created a regimen. That kid, I stayed a month. My job allowed me to do that. Thank goodness. I'm really blessed to have work for Doctors on Demand. And um, what was incredible was this kid had zero pain after eight days, um, none. I mean, he had minor pain then, but it was just gone and he's not had any since. And we're less than three months out. He's no, he's been weight bearing walking and, you know, walking and riding his bike. And I'm just like, you it's know such what? a devastating. That's the, that's the wonderful, for all the negative things we talk about, uh, modern medicine, emergency medicine, orthopedic mm -hmm. is miraculous what they're able to do. Yes, absolutely. Recovery is where people like you come in, but right. what they're able to do today is incredible miraculous and that's you know that's where i've always told people in our health movement that that you know growing up that have been the anti-medicine anti-doctors no 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 no, no. Mm. that's there's a place there's a very important mm. place now get well and then get the hell out of the hospital as soon as you can right, but the, right. You don't, don't don't stress over taking some pain medication or having some surgery or even a blood transfusion if you got to have it just mm. don't, don't let your principles uh uh, outweigh your compromises and, and your health, mm. but they, mm. they can do some pretty amazing. My mother at age 90 had a, had a broken hip uh, plate and the screws and at 90 mm. and they mm. put her back and she was stronger than she was before. That's yes, amazing. Right. That's yep. thank God. Thank God for yep. that. And Dr. Esselstyn had a bike accident and had a hip fracture and he thought, recovered. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And so just That's amazing. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was, he was, yeah, older. And uh, so it's, but I, I will, I will echo the sentiment that there was. He was in. We were very blessed to have a very skilled surgeon, and we're very thankful for him. And he was so excited to hear about this, the nutrition part. Like he actually started asking me, he "Goes, what have you read?" <laughs> and I told him, "He's like, well, I'll tell you." And it impressed his physical therapist. She's like, "I can't believe how well your skin's healing." He, she goes, "I think I might go vegan just for that because Gabe's sharing this information." You know, sign me up for the journal when we come out with it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, it's coming along. It's a, it, wow. Everyone I know has never launched a journal. So we're kind of, we're kind of doing this together, but um, right. we've been really blessed with so much support. I can't even tell you how amazing it is. I'm, it's a tickle, just tickles me, but anyway. It's been a lot of fun. 
It is. It's a lot of fun. Um, but wow, I've boy taken up your time. So I do so appreciate your time and sharing your information. And I, everyone who's listening, please look the link below. There will be links with um, information about the conference and your email and the magazine and the association and the website and uh, everything that's uh, so wonderful they have to offer. So I so thank you for your time. We got to get you to our next conference. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. This year is uh, busy with daughters getting married, and I will and be running. Uh, accidents. Lord help me. I just pray. That's all a mother can do at this point. Is like they're adults. They're off, and prayers. But I've there. I've been so. I have such amazing children. I'm really blessed. We're really blessed. So. <laughs> So I can only do is be thankful, right? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you again. We'll talk to you soon. All right.